0: Several week long series. I think this where this begins week nine uh, of a series that we're calling Apocalypse, and uh, we've been through uh, the book of Ezekiel. Uh, we've been through the book of Daniel, and uh, today the wait is over. Uh, we are going to begin the book of Revelation. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I've been super excited about this, and so I'm really looking forward to today. I hope that you have been excited about it as well, and I hope that this series has been helpful to you. Uh, and it is—you uh, might think that um, why in the world are we doing a, a series on Revelation in Christmas or during Christmas time and for the Advent season? And uh, hopefully, by the end of today, that will be uh, be clear to you uh, as to why we're doing that. So, uh, so let's just jump right in. You know, this uh, this book. Uh, of the Bible, Revelation has probably the most baggage of any book in the Bible. Uh, particularly, it has the most baggage of any book in the Bible that people don't read. So, um, let me ask you a question, a little uh, audience participation here this morning. I want to I won't ask you if you haven't read Revelation, I will instead ask for those of you that have read it to boldly and proudly raise your hand. How many of you have read the book of Revelation? Almost everybody. Okay, very good. Now, how many of you, like, that was five years ago and you have vowed never to read it again? Okay, yeah, like, you read it and you were like, oh my word, okay, that was awesome. Just check that off my list, never going back to it, okay? Uh, This is is a book that has been... um, it's been ignored, it's been avoided, uh, and yet, despite the fact that it is, um, it, it is ignored, it is that, okay, I read that, get it checked off the list, don't really want to go back to that because I don't understand it, it's weird, all of these kinds of things, it, interestingly, in, interestingly enough, despite the fact that we don't read it or we don't read it often, it is very deep in American culture. Uh, so so regardless of, of whether you've read it or not, and I see that most of you have, maybe just once. I don't know how long ago that was. But regardless of whether you've read it or not, chances are you have an opinion about it. You have a perspective about it. Or at the very least, you have some assumptions about this, this book. And so it is very deep in American culture. Now, this uh, has become... This is this, by the way, is not a new phenomenon. This this idea of revelation being uh, a debated text, uh, the idea of of revelation being a um, just a, a text in a book that is filled with controversy, a controverted text. Uh, this the, none of this is is brand new, and yet, sort of in our modern American culture, we've really had a rise in the interest of. Things about the end, uh, things having to do with Revelation, and and really all of that began in the seventies with the with one book by a guy named Hal Lindsey, uh, and this book was called Late Great Planet Earth. Now I won't uh, ask how many of you have read that; that will show your age. <laughs> okay, but but it was made even more popular uh, in in the nineteen nineties. Uh, with the release of the Left Behind series. How many of you have read at least one? I won't ask if you've read all 12, because that is a daunting task, to read 12 books in a series. Uh, You know, if Twilight was 12 books long, that would just be awful for everyone. But, uh, okay, so, so interest in Revelation, interest in the end times things was, was made popular in the 70s, made even more popular in the 90s by the Left Behind series, of which many of you have read. But both of these, in, in modern culture, uh, come from a particular point of view in understanding Revelation. And, and so what I want to offer to you is perhaps a, a, another type of reading. Today is going to be different. Uh, it's going to be another sort of more teacher than it is preacher uh, but you guys know me and, and I can't help but but sneak some preaching in there. Uh, but my goal today is to kind of give you a broad sweep over the book of Revelation. So our text today is really Revelation. Now we won't read all of it. We'll read portions of it and sections of it. We'll reference a lot of it, uh, but we won't just sit down, read a text and study it. That will be later on uh, in the series. But but this particular viewpoint that has become so popular in modern culture and, and, and probably the, the assumptions that you bring to this book because of those, the popularity of the Left Behind series and the late great planet Earth is what I explained a couple of weeks ago and that is the perspective of dispensationalists. Now, uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, you'll remember that. Uh, if you were here a couple of weeks maybe you don 't remember that, um, but but we looked at this this idea of what dispensationalist is. You can go back and listen to it, and uh, it 'll be explained there but, but Central to the sort of dispensationalist picture is. Um, is is the idea that that by looking at the Revelation, uh, by looking at John's Revelation and the book of Revelation, we can uh, determine things on a timeline, including when the rapture will happen. We can uh, get some clues as to the identity of the Antichrist. And uh, i got to tell you, I grew up with this sort of framework of understanding Revelation. And if you were anything like me, uh, you would stay up late at night and and wonder, am I the Antichrist? (laughs) Because I got so, I got I got an amen right here in the front row. That's good, that's good. Now the reason now that may sound that may sound rather weird, but 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 sort of the the idea is, and what I was always taught is that the identity of the antichrist is someone uh, who who thought he was a Christian and was well liked. And I'm like, I fit the bill. What if I? And the Antichrist, Lord, no, you know. And, and so, and then also dispensationalists like to kind of put things on a timeline like we talked about. And, and, and uh, kind of there's a lot to debate about when the rapture will happen in the timeline and all of that stuff. But so, so not only would I stay up late at night wondering, am I the Antichrist? But late at night, right after I was thinking about if I was the Antichrist, I would sneak down the hall to my parents' room just to make sure they were still there. Because if they were still there, then the rapture hadn't happened, you know. And because I just knew that if the Lord was going to take anybody, he would take my parents, you know. And so if they were there, if they were if they were there, that was good news. If they were gone and I was still here, I had been left behind, okay. And that was bad news, bad news. Okay, so, so you know, there's, there, and, and the, these terms, rapture, antichrist, are embedded in American culture. Uh, but, like I said, the reality is, 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 is that the interpretation of this book has always been controversial. Uh, Revelation was written in the 90s. Now, some of you are like, oh, yeah, you know, like Vanilla Ice and Say by the Bell. No, like the 90s, like the real 90s, okay, was when Revelation was a, was, was, uh, it's a, you know, the Revelation is an actual child of the 90s. Doesn't that make you feel good? Like, if you're my age and you're a child of the 90s, you're like, Revelation and I, we're just one because we're, we're, we're both children. Okay, that's not working. Okay, so we're children of the 90s, all right? It was written in the 90s, but it's always been a controversial text. In fact, in the 4th century AD, a church historian who had, who had logged and was keeping track of the history of the church up to that point, in the 4th century AD, uh, a guy named Eusebius, Eusebius was writing a list of books Biblical books that, that, based on the history of the church, were supposed to be in the New Testament, right? And, and, and so he was saying, okay, here are the books that, that really need to be in the New Testament. And, and he, he made three sections. One was, these books are certainly in the Gospels. okay, Certainly in, no doubt about it, they, they belong in the Bible. Then there was sort of this middle category that, that these are the books that are debated, uh, we don't know, uh, you know. They they've been canonized. Canonized means they've been in the they're, they're, they've made their way into the New Testament scriptures as we know them today. But there was a lot of debate. Some people think they shouldn't be there. This is the book of James in the New Testament. Okay, lots of people didn't know there was a lot of debate as to whether the book of James. And then there was like certainly not. This book should certainly not be in our Bible. Okay, this is the work that he was doing. All right. Now, I see that you guys aren't history buffs, but stick with me. Now, which, which category do you think the book of Revelation ended up in? Certainly in, debated, or certainly out? Give me some feedback. Certainly out, okay? That's, a, that's what I'm hearing. All right, you're right. But he also put it in certainly in. It was in two categories. Isn't that funny? This guy's like, you know, what, what does he think? He's, you know, a joker or what's going on? I mean, he put revelation in certainly in and certainly out. Now, what does this mean? It means that what you think about revelation, you're probably pretty passionate about, right? I mean, because this, this debated Category was for when there was debate, but there really was no debate. Half the people thought it should be certainly in. There's no debate about that. Half the other people thought it should certainly be out, and there's no debate about it. And so he put it in both lists. It has been a book that has been controversial from the time it was actually written. And people have done some crazy things based on a misreading Of this book. How many of you, if I say David Koresh, know what I'm talking about? Like the Kool Aid incident? There was like this mass suicide that happened. Did you know that at the time of that event, David Koresh was actively writing a commentary on Revelation? Did you know that his cult portrayed themselves as being Christian and those that studied the word and made, and, and made the word of God important in their lives? See, it is important how we read this book. And the reason that it's important how we read this book is because what we believe about what is to come drastically shapes how we act today. See, a lot of people would, would want to put Revelation and, and sort of cast it to the side and say, oh, it's weird. We can really have the New Testament without it. Let, let's just not worry about it. And why would you do a series on Revelation? This is actually in the six years that I've been here. This is the second Revelation series that we've done. Why would you do a series on this book that is so debated, so controversial? Why wouldn't you on a Sunday morning just gather a bunch of people together and just talk about what you already all agree on? Because what we believe about the end dramatically shapes how we live today. So here's what I want to do today. Are you guys ready? Is this, are you guys excited? As, are you, hopefully, you're as excited as I am, because I'm excited. Here's what I want to do today. I want to give you uh, three misunderstandings of the book of Revelation. And then I want to give you three keys to understanding the book of Revelation. And uh, the three keys are absent of any particular viewpoint. Now, I, f- I feel like they lend themselves to a particular viewpoint, but as I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, that there's, there's freedom in this church to to view this book uh, however you want. And so the three keys to understanding are, are, are really three keys to uh, understanding any biblical book, but we're going to look at them through a frame of, of revelation, okay? So, uh, But let me start by, let me, uh, start by saying this. Um, in the, in the misunderstandings, uh, this is, a, this is a, a great quote on the book of Revelation. It says this. And though St. John, that is the, the writer of, of Revelation, though St. John the evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he has seen no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Okay? In other words, there's like this drastic thing. Now, here's the, here's the first. Here's a the, here's the misunderstanding, too. Um, beware the apocalypse. I'm just going to allow that to sink in a little bit. Just keep looking. I mean, this is, uh, this, by the way, is the most critical misunderstanding in the book of Revelation. We cannot make this mistake. Okay, we we just cannot do it. This is absolutely critical. (laughs) I, I saw that, and I laughed so hard. I was just in my office. It was actually on Facebook. Actually, one of our own posted it on Facebook, and I saw it. And I I just had to take a moment to laugh out loud because that is really, really funny. So it's the uh, apocalypse, not the alpacalypse. (laughs) Okay. Let's keep going, shall we? Let's Let's drive on. All right, so here... I said there were three misunderstandings. That was the first one, okay? So for those of you that are taking notes, make sure and get that. The second one, the second misunderstanding, or really, if we're honest, the first. The first misunderstanding of of how we can read Revelation is this, that we read the book of Revelation as a script, that, that we read it as a script. Now, that is to say that when we read the Revelation, we're actually reading the necessary, intended, has to happen future for the world. And I think that is an error in understanding what the book of Revelation is actually meant to do. Because if we read it that way, then what happens? All of a sudden we read this book and it's full of violence and huge monsters and, and like blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle and all of these kinds of things. Now if we read it as a script for the world and what has to happen, then what does that do to the way in which we live right now? When we come into contact with violence, when we see earth Quakes and rumors and wars and rumors and wars and all of these things that Revelation mentions and talks about. Well, what is our inherent response? Our inherent response is not, "Oh Lord, help us answer this injustice, be with those people." It's be with those people. But praise the Lord, the end of the world is coming. You see what I'm saying? If this is a script. And then as we look around the world and we see these events begin happening, then the response, we can't help it, is to say, man, that's too bad, but at least the Lord is coming soon. And in fact, it would really diminish motivation to respond to those events if we see them as they just got to happen. This is just how it's going to go down. I can't do anything about it. This is God's will and God's plan, and certainly I wouldn't want to do anything to go against God's will and God's plan. Now, some of you may say, well, that's ridiculous. This can be a script and we can still answer uh, these, these um, tragedies and these uh, natural disasters and all of these things. We can still answer them with love and compassion and God's heart for justice and all of those things. And, and so what I'm, what I'm simply offering is that this mindset has a logical end of this response in our life. In fact, I was just—I was listening to the radio this week, and I heard—I uh, heard pastors tell a caller this exact thing, and that was they were referencing a recent event in the world that was tragic. Lots of people that had had died. There was this kind. It was a, it was a tragic event in the world, and the pastor said to them. It is too bad, but at least we know the Lord is coming soon. and so the first sort of danger I think, of reading this as a script is it actually does something to us in how we see the world. Does that make sense and so what I simply want to offer you is is to consider that if we if we see and understand this book as a script, what is that doing? To your responses and your heart today. Now, this uh, revelation as a script is is uh, is comes from this that revelation is dependent upon Daniel chapter nine, which we looked at a few weeks ago. That's the seventy weeks, and that it provides the script for the last seven years of God's prophetic stopwatch. And so, again, a couple weeks ago we looked at Daniel chapter nine. We talked about dispensationalism. We talked about how there's this this framework that says that God has this prophetic stopwatch that is is counting down to the end of the world, but the stopwatch essentially stops at the coming of Christ, then we have the whole church age, and then it it starts ticking again at the rapture, which introduces the seven years of tribulation. And what we have in Revelation, roughly chapter 6 through roughly chapter 18, 19, is, is the script... For the seven years of tribulation. That's how many people read this book. And again I would say that this is, is, this is a misunderstanding of the purpose of this book. Because of what it does in our lives here today. And so terrible world events. While tragic can be celebrated this view says. Or the logical end of this view is. That it can be celebrated because it brings us one step closer to the coming of Christ. And so also this this viewpoint revelation of script is always going to say what's going on in the world how can we fit it into the timeline how can we fit it into the prophetic stopwatch how does this event trigger this event trigger this event and if we're if we're discerning enough we can actually know what events are coming up and all of these kinds of things and so the recent events of wars and rumors and wars the economic crash of 2008 the earthquake in haiti in january 2010 the gulf coast oil disaster uh, all of a sudden made it seem likely that one third of all all sea life could die from this gigantic oil disaster and so people were looking at the book of revelation saying oh this is coming true this is happening and these are all signs that the apocalypse is coming and so following the script (laughs) and so following the script again will just give us the information that we need to discover the identity of the antichrist even and so we can follow clues here and there, and the Antichrist will be someone that thinks they're a Christian and is friendly, and hopefully it's not you. And um, The word Antichrist is, is only mentioned four times in all of Scripture, uh, none of which are in Revelation. And all four times are in the, the little books that John writes, in 1 John and 2 John. And half the time, it's used in the plural, Antichrists, and uh, and Dan Atkins, one of our own, who preached here last week, also mentioned that as part of his message, and in looking at First John, that it was the, the Antichrist is used in the plural many times. All right, so Revelation as script, and this is also, uh, you know, the dispensationalist timeline, the Rapture uh, in the sixties. Uh, Wheaton, Collin, Whe- Wheaton College was a millenni- millennialist school. Now, again, I wanna, I'm referencing a lot of information that we went over two weeks ago, but uh, it was a millennial- millennialist school. Hopefully I can tell this story without having to say that word too often. And uh, it was um, that was to say that all of the professors had to have that particular view of, of the end times and the dispensation framework. And so uh, uh, this is a true story. A student uh, in at Wheaton College, began to ask this question of his theology professor. What difference would it make if a chemistry professor was an amillennialist? In other words, he just didn't believe in any of this timeline stuff. And the the answer that his theology professor said is, would you want your daughter to marry an amillennialist? (laughs) In, In other words... It's easy for us to think that the view that we hold for revelation is essential to the Christian faith, and what I want to understand, and I want what I want you to know that I understand is that it's not, okay. But I do want to help us get some uh, get some handles on which we can grab this book, um, and the first one is is I don't think that we can read Revelation as a script. Now, the second misunderstanding, for those of you that are following along, uh, this is a great day for you note-takers, all right? One, two, and then the next section, one, two, three, okay? This is this is made for you. Um, the The second misunderstanding of, of the book of Revelation is that, it, that we can read it with a literal interpretation, a literal interpretation. Uh, now, this is, uh, many contend that, again, that the book of Revelation can be read Literally. Now this becomes very difficult when we get to some parts of the book. Okay, Some parts of the book, like when there's living creatures that are covered with eyes. And then if we're understanding this book literally, then we would have to say that sometime in the future, according to the script, there will be creatures that arise out of the sea that have seven wings, and all the wings are covered with eyes. Okay? And so, but but we can't... Understand this book literally because also we have in this book a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. And we have a rider on a white horse who is wearing a robe dipped in blood, who has eyes of fire, a sword coming out of his mouth, and has a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of Kings. Yes, it's Jesus. Those of you with a tattoo, Jesus has a tattoo. <laughs> See, some of you are like, that's what I got out of today's sermon, right? The other day, I said, those of you that, you know, God has white hair, so wear it with honor. White-haired folks, today, if you have a tattoo, wear it boldly. Because in Revelation 19, Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. All right? So there you go. Um, The literal interpretation of of Revelation gets into a lot of trouble because of all of these weird images, right? Right? And so here's how those that have said we need to read Revelation as, as, as a literal text, how they have gotten around this. And uh, this, this may seem odd to some of you, but this is actually very, very prominent in the understanding of Revelation. And that is that we can le- read it literally, and when we come across these images that are very confusing, what we're actually reading is, is a first-century author trying to describe modern weapons of warfare. And so for example, the winged beast with eyes would be a drone. Come on somebody. And the beast with seven wings would be a helicopter. Now some of you're like that's I don't think that's what it's saying. You're right. <laughs> You're right. I think that's a dramatic misreading of the book of Revelation. And yet, many people do that. Many people say that we have to understand this book literally, and what do we do with all these weird images then? Well, this is just a first century author trying to describe modern warfare. And so they, they come up with all sorts of, of in my mind, crazy ideas of, of what Revelation can mean. All right, so those, those are the misunderstandings. Some of you are like, let's get to the keys. That's what I want to give to you, the keys, Okay. I told you, I warned you up front, this would feel more like teaching than preaching, but don't worry, I'll sneak some in. The first key to understanding Revelation is to understand the genre, the genre. Now, when we, um, we have to understand genre, because that has a lot to do with how we begin how we come to the book, how we begin to understand the book. For example, um, let's take the genre of the romantic comedy, okay? The modern Hollywood romantic comedy starring none other than Matthew McConaughey. Okay, ladies, do I got you? We on board? Okay. All right. So, in this genre, there are certain things that we know to expect Number one, they will fall, Matthew McConaughey will fall in love with whoever the other lead actress is quite unexpectedly, right? If we saw it coming all along, it wouldn't pull our heartstrings. And so we know that number one, they're going to fall in love unexpectedly or through unexpected circumstances. Number two, we know there's going to be a conflict somewhere in the middle where their love is broken. (gasps) And then we're left with the big question of, are they going to get back together? Are they going to finally find the love that they once had 45 minutes ago? Right? And the answer in a Matthew McConaughey movie is always, yes. Every, at the end of every Matthew McConaughey movie, he is either running after a bus or chasing a Ferrari in a scooter, Right? Or, or like, you name it, he's always like, no, don't fly away. I'm going to meet you at the airport. You know, I mean, there's, there's certain things that we can expect because the genre is a romantic comedy starring Matthew McConaughey. It doesn't matter how many times you rewrite it. It's got the same elements and it has the same themes. The same, I mean, and we could say this for any genre. We could go right down, you know, some of you like horror movies. I'm not in that camp. I don't, I don't get it. But, you know, some of you like horror movies. They're, they all have a similar script, right? Paranormal Activity, one, two, three, four. Same movie, okay? Haven't seen it, but I already know it's the same movie, all four of them. All right, so, All right. So the genre has a lot of where. If we understand the genre, then we sort of know what to come to expect. And the genre of Revelation is the apocalyptic genre, not the apocalyptic genre. The alp al, al, that one <laughs> apocalyptic genre. All right. And and what this means now? Apocalypse. The word apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. Right. Apocalypse does not mean into the world. It literally means unveiling or uncovering. And so what we, when we come to this book, we first of all realize, actually, the, na- the reason it's called Revelation is because apocalyptic is revealing something. Have you ever thought about why it's called Revelation? Because it's revealing something. Now we have to ask, what is it revealing? Now, there are lots of other examples of apocalyptic, ancient, ancient apocalyptic literature. And what they reveal generally speaking, are the mysteries of God. When we come to, under, when we come to an apocalyptic book, they're, they're revealing something to us about the nature of who God is. They're revealing a mystery about who God is. And they're, they're, they're letting us in into the very throne room of heaven. They're giving us a, a peek. They're giving us a shadow. They're giving us a signpost of what things will be like. Uh, they're, they're unveiling to us the mysteries of God. And typically speaking, they reveal to us the mysteries of God that are future-oriented. And the reason is because Curiously enough, we're not all that interested in stuff that has already happened. Right? And so they're not revealing something that we already know. They're revealing something to us about the mystery of God as it relates to the future. Are you with me? And so there's also all kinds of common themes in this genre as well. For example, apocalyptic books are very symbolic. Very symbolic, which means we can't come to them with sort of a literal lens. Otherwise, we, we, we come across these weird images and we don't know what to do with them. And so we say, oh, this must be a first century author trying to describe modern warfare because we have to read it literally. And I would say, no, you don't have to read it literally. You need to understand that what you're reading is a symbolic book. It's an apocalyptic genre. And now the other thing that is very common among apocalyptic literature is that it's cosmic in scale, right? Right? Nothing is, is small or no big deal in Revelation. When you re- read Revelation, everything is sort of on this enormous scale, right? I mean, it is like cosmic. It's huge. It's symbolic. And then the other thing that is very common all throughout ancient apocalyptic literature, some of you stick with me, okay? The, the other very thing that's, that's really important is that it uses animals to, to keep the narrative going. Okay, so what do we have? We have all sorts of animals in the book of Revelation. We have all these kind of beasts coming out of the sea. We have winged beasts with eyes all over them. We have dragons with seven heads and ten horns. We have, uh, we have the lion from the tribe of Judah. We have uh, the lamb who was slain. Like Jesus himself is, is, is put in terms of the imagery of an animal. And so this is very common to this genre. All right. So, for example, oh, also in this, the purpose of apocalyptic literature is always to bring about a change in its hearers. Or, as a result of revealing the mystery of God, is to produce something in them. To produce some sort of reaction in them. And so, it has a very explicit purpose as we go through this book. Now, let me give you an example that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. A great example of, of modern apocalyptic literature that has a lot of the same, uh, same, same sorts of um, elements is A Christmas Carol. That, that Scrooge is, is taken on this frightening journey that is meant to reveal to him the way the world would be if he would go on being the same as he always has been. But instead, he's taken on this journey for the purpose of invoking change in him right now. You take take the ghosts out of the Christmas carol, and what do you have? You have a guy who didn't like Christmas, but but through no particular influence whatsoever, he became to like Christmas. That's not a bestseller. Right? And some of you are like, I missed it. Was there something? No, you didn't miss it. That would be the Christmas carol without the images and the ghosts. Of, of Christmas past, present, and future. You would have a guy who doesn't like Christmas, but through no particular influence becomes to like Christmas. Ha! Great! What do you have? Nothing! You know? And so, that's a, so we use all these images as a way of bringing about a particular change. And so, you, so the point of all this with the genre is that you cannot read it like you read the Gospels. And as we come to the book of Revelation, you cannot read it like you read the letters of Paul. Now, another modern example that doesn't quite fit all of the things but uh, introduces the power of symbolism is the Narnia series, right? Uh, Many of you have read the Narnia series, and you can sort of read it on one level. Great. Children's book. Dig it. Then you can read it understanding all the symbols, and it becomes very, very powerful because of the power of the symbols. And this is a classic element of the apocalyptic genre. All right. So the first key to understanding Revelation is that we have to understand what is the genre that we're looking at. Now, it's, not, it's, it's much better than a Matthew McConaughey movie. Okay. The second key to understanding the book of Revelation is context. Context. Now, Revelation is written to seven real churches. Did you hear me? Revelation is written to seven Real churches that actually existed in real history, in a real place. These were real people. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was studying this week, it, just allowing that to sink in, that this book doesn't exist sort of only in, in the 70s and 90s and in the way in which we grew up with it. But this book was written to ancient churches in Asia Minor, and it was meant to do something to these churches. It was like... It was like us receiving a letter from from a leader to to, to encourage us to give us hope to inspire us to speak life into our community. This book was written to seven real churches in real history. And man, that means a lot. And John, the author of Revelation, was on the island, and he tells us, was on an island of Patmos, and he tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, that he is there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That is to say that he is being imprisoned on this island because he was preaching Jesus. Jesus. He's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It was, a, it was very common in ancient uh, culture to incarcerate criminals on an island. Because what are they going to do there? Right? Like what trouble are they going to cause on an island? So let's take all the criminals and let's shove them to an island. So John, preaching the word of Jesus, got in trouble and was sent to the island of Patmos where he receives this vision. And so he writes this vision. This revelation, this apocalypse to seven churches that are actually in a relatively small demographic area. In fact, I have a picture for you of these seven churches. The seven churches are starred right here in Asia Minor. This is modern day Turkey, by the way. And so they, this is actually the, the, the way in which they're listed in the book of Revelation is actually the common mail route. In, in that ancient culture of, of how you know, mail like, predate the Pony Express but you know, sending letters they had to get there somewhere some way, and this was a common mail route and so these are in very sort of tight demographic uh, area there uh, but I thought it might be good just leave that up for a little while so that, so that we can take a look at that um, but here's what I want to, to do If we realize that that this book is written to seven real churches in real history, it gives us a very important interpretive tool. And that is, they would have had to have understood the book. Right? I mean, this isn't written to seven churches just because... This isn't written to seven churches so that, so that it could be sort of shrouded with mystery. After all, this is a book of unveiling. This is a, v- a book of uncovering. And so we've got to consider Revelation inside of its historical context. And, and what that, this, this really important thing is that the original audience would have had to have understand the letter, the book, the apocalypse. Okay, And a lot of times in, in sort of the way that we modernly understand Revelation, we totally forget that. And we make it completely absent of historical setting. And so throughout the letter, in fact, he calls the reader to understand. He says, let the reader be given wisdom. Let the reader understand. There's several points in which the book, he says, those who are reading this, the seven churches, must understand. Get this. Grasp it. And in fact, let me give you one example of when he does that. And that is in when he mentions the numbers 666 in Revelation 19. Revelation 13. Now, 666. When I was in college, my roommate, my roommate and I discovered that every barcode has 666 in it. It has a six at the beginning, it has a six at the middle, it has a six at the end, and that is to give the barcode reader boundaries of where to find the barcode. And so every barcode has 666, and we were like, <gasps> <laughs> and we were like, We're not going to buy anything with a barcode. Which is kind of cool because every textbook has a barcode. (laughs) Right? So we were like, yeah, (laughs) boycott barcodes, you know. And and so, so, you know, but when we look at the text, when we look at the text of Revelation, in Revelation uh, 13, verse 18, it says this. This calls for wisdom. And let those who have insight... Calculate the number. A lot of translations say, uh, let the reader understand is how the verse starts. This calls for wisdom. He's asking the seven churches who are reading this apocalypse to have wisdom. And he's calling them to insight in order to understand this number of the beast. And it is a number, what? Of a man. It's the number of a man. Another way to translate that phrase, it's the it's the letter of humanity. And that number is six, six, six. Now throughout Revelation, seven is is made is, is the number of completion or perfection. And so if you have six, that is short of perfection perfection or completion if you triple it 666 then all of a sudden that stands for a grave evil something that is far 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 short from perfection at all so he says first of all let the reader understand in fact get get wisdom get insight For I'm about to give you the number of the beast and it's the number of a man and that number is 666 he's not talking to us about barcodes or anything else he's saying to the original audience Listen, hear, understand. This number is symbolic. And so it isn't meant to reveal to us the Antichrist, and it isn't meant to reveal to us a script for the future about barcodes, but rather it spoke a particular kind of message to those seven real churches in the way, in the same way that it speaks to us today, in very similar ways. In other words, if this book if this apocalypse was meant to inspire hope and encouragement to the original audience in the seven churches, it is, surely is not meant to inspire fear in us. But I wonder how many times the book of Revelation is used as a club over someone's head to scare them to the gospel. See, we cannot rob Revelation of its context, of its historical context. It must function for us in the same way it functioned for the original audience. Is this helpful? Is this making sense? All right. Three of you think it's helpful. That's good. We'll keep going for three of us. The rest of you, don't worry. I only have 45 minutes left. Ha <laughs> Third key. Is that this book is highly symbolic, highly symbolic. Now, guess what? These these keys to understanding actually help fight against the misreadings. Right? Uh, if we if we understand. Revelation in its context, then we're kept from reading Revelation as a script. If we understand Revelation is highly symbolic, then we're kept from under, from seeing Revelation as a literal book. Okay, so what we're going to do now is we're gonna, I'm going to give you lots of examples of the symbols in the book, and because uh, just to illustrate what this book is all about, the author does not often say Jesus. He talks about Jesus a lot, but he doesn't often just say Jesus or Jesus Christ or even the Son of God. But what does he say? In Revelation 19, Jesus is the rider on the white horse. Remember the tattoo on the thigh. In Revelation 5, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Also in Revelation chapter 5 and throughout the whole book, he's the lamb, the lambkin, the little lamb, but who was slain. The little lamb by which if we identify ourselves with him in his death, we might be victorious. It is, he is the lamb who was slain. In Revelation Chapter 12, he's the male child who is born out of the uh, out of the out of the woman who is, uh, who is being faced and is in the face of a, of a dragon ready to thwart the ways of God. This, by the way, is what the, the passage that we're going to look at for Cosmic Christmas in just a couple of weeks is Revelation chapter 12. Jesus is the male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. In Revelation 17, Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Now, why wouldn't the author just say Jesus? Because if you describe Jesus as a rider on a white horse, and he's wearing a robe that is dipped in his own blood, because he's the lamb who was slain, and his eyes are made of fire, and he has a sword coming out of his mouth that is the word of God, and he has a tattoo on his thigh that says, the king of kings and the lord of lords, and then all of a sudden, That symbol has a lot more power than if the author had just said Jesus. Jesus came in on a horse. Versus, there's a rider on a white horse who wears a white robe dipped in blood. And his eyes are ablaze like fire. And he has a sword coming out of his mouth. And on his thigh, he has the saying, it is written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Do you understand the power of the symbol? And so this book is highly symbolic. And also, in Revelation chapter 1, we have the symbol of the lampstands. And the the thing that I want us to understand and get away from this section with the symbols is that oftentimes, John himself, the writer of Revelation, gives us the meaning of the symbol. We don't have to be like real... Sometimes he says, be discerning, let the hearer understand. And then sometimes he just gives it to us. And he says, oh, by the way, the seven heads are the seven hills. The lampstands are the churches, right? And so in, the, in Revelation chapter 1, John churns and he sees seven lampstands, and among them is one who looks like the Son of Man, and he's sort of all these weird details. But then he goes on to say, oh, by the way, the lampstands are the churches. Well, why would he symbolize churches with a lampstand? Because they didn't have electricity in the, modern, in the ancient world, okay? Right? Obvious, duh. They needed a lamp for light. Where would they put it? On the floor, under a bowl, Jesus said. Would you ever put a lamp lamp under a bowl to hide its light? But no, you would put the lamp up on a table, up on a lampstand that it might provide light for the entire home. And so John, in his vision, sees seven lampstands. These are the seven churches to which he writes. And he's saying, perhaps, perhaps the churches are lampstands so that we might make famous the light of the world so that we might raise up the light for all the world to see. You see, a lot of times the symbols are just given to us Right there. We might see the light more clearly in a dark world is the reason that he calls the church as the lampstands. Now, in Revelation 19, we have believers who are wearing fine white linen. Revelation 19, Jesus comes in on a white horse. He's wearing a white robe, but his robe is dipped in blood. It's his own blood because he's died on the cross for us. And so the righteous come in because there's an army behind the guy, the rider of the white horse. And it is those who are made righteous. And they're what? They're wearing Fine linen. And then the, the, the author tells us right there, the white is pure. It stands for purity because we're made pure through the sacrifice of Christ. The white robe of Christ is dipped in his own blood so that you and I might wear a robe that is only white. And then we might be pure in him. Come on now. This isn't just a classroom. This is a church where we celebrate the name of Jesus. And then he says that the robe is the righteous deeds of the saints. And later on in that chapter, we have the wedding banquet of the Lamb, to which all the righteous are wearing their white robes, pure through the sacrifice of Christ, and then the robe is the righteous deeds of the saints. What do you mean? Do we just bring all of our righteous deeds to the wedding supper of the Lamb? Well, yeah, you do, because your unrighteous deeds have been covered by the blood of Christ so that you might be presented holy and righteous before him. In other words, at the coming together of of Jesus, the, the Son of God, the slain Lamb of God, and the church, all that you bring are your righteous deeds. Because all of your unrighteous deeds... All of the sin in your life, all of that, that negative thought, that habit, that addiction, all of those things, all of the unrighteous deeds that you and I deal with and struggle with and grapple with in this life and in this world, when we get to go to the wedding supper of the Lamb, we will be presented righteous because your sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. All we wear to the wedding is our righteous deeds. Is John saying that all of us will really wear white robes? Because I don't look that good in white. No. He's not saying that you will literally wear a white robe. He's saying that what you'll wear are your righteous deeds. Because your unrighteous deeds have been covered by the blood of the Lamb who was slain. Is this encouraging to anybody? The New Jerusalem is described as having pearl gates and streets of gold. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And what does he say? He says that that's the church. He's not saying this is what heaven really looks like. He's saying that that the church is made beautiful again by the Lamb who was slain. And so we have sort of this, this personal effect that all that, that you and I personally bring to the wedding supper of the Lamb is, is this... Is this this robe that is the righteous deeds because all of our unrighteousness has been covered in Christ. And then collectively, the church together can be described in none other as being this city that is filled with streets of gold and gates of pearls and all of these beautiful and expensive materials and the finest material in all the world. This, he says, is the church. He says it right in the text. Which is why we wouldn't have near as much baggage with this book if we'd read it. If we would just read it. All right. One last symbol. In, uh, in Revelation 17, he talks about a harlot who sits on a beast with seven heads. And then 17 verse 9 tells us that the seven heads are the seven hills. Now, in its historical setting, in its original context, seven hills would have immediately meant something. It's a geographical point of a location to tell us who the beast is. The harlot sits on the beast. The beast has seven horns. The seven horns are seven hills. Let me show you a picture. The seven hills are the seven hills of Rome. And so the beast is Rome. And he tells us that right in the text. It would be, it would be something like this. It would be like a, a, a letter going out to the churches in Denver, Greeley, Loveland, Windsor, Wellington, Severance, come on, somebody, and Eaton. And saying the harlot sits on a beast that has teeth like a rock. And then all the seven churches would be like, the beast is Fort Collins. That's all that's happening here. And so, some of you that aren't from Fort Collins, I don't want to hear an amen, okay? Or I will immediately make fun of Greeley because I got, I, got I got a backlog of Greeley jokes. That's all that he's doing here. The symbol, he gives us the meaning. And and we might say, oh, the seven hills is so mysterious. And we don't know what it means because modern day, this map, there's only one hill left, right? But in that historical setting, they would have been like, oh, yeah, the beast is Rome. And it is Rome that is so oppressive in its power that it could be described as a beast. And we are to overcome the evil of Rome. How? By the blood of the lamb who has been slain and by the word of our testimony. You see what I'm saying? Okay. This is going to make... This is, I told you, this is a sweep so that we can begin to dive into Revelation for the next three weeks and begin to really understand it. All right, the point of the text. The point is that the the text itself acknowledges the use of symbolism. So we can't have a literal meaning because the the author itself, the text itself, says, Oh, this means that, and this means that, and that stands for that. And in many cases, it just tells the reader what the symbols mean. So we shouldn't go hunting around to crack a code, okay? If you hear somebody uh, that has written a book or on a radio or, you know, everything you... I know that everything you read on the Internet is true, so let's forget that. But if you read somebody and they say that they have cracked the code of Revelation or the Bible... That is garbage. Can I just say that out loud? I know that some of you are going to send me an email, but that is garbage. It's garbage. Revelation is the unveiling. It's the uncovering. And in many cases, he just tells us what it means. And so understanding the symbolism keeps us from reading it literally. All right, I'm almost done. When you consider the context, the genre, and the symbolism, what in the world does all of this mean? Well, verse 1 tells us what to expect from this book. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God showed his servants, what must soon take place. And some of you, probably most of you, are saying, My Bible doesn't say that. My Bible says, The revelation from Jesus Christ. Right around 1979, when Late Great Planet Earth came out, All of the Bibles, most of the Bibles, since that time, have changed this word to the revelation from Jesus Christ. If you track translations of the Bible previous to 1979, almost all of them say the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those are drastically different. And I I would want to argue with you that the interpreters have made an interpretive move based on the popularity of, of the way in which we understand this book and have in modern culture since somewhere right around 1980. But if it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, then these symbols and the context and the genre is all meant to point us to one thing, to Christ. If it's a revelation from Jesus Christ, then all the symbols and the context and the genre are meant to point us to some hidden code, to the hidden identity of the Antichrist, to the timing of the rapture, and to all of these things. And yet, there's one dominant theme. There, of course, are many others, but there's one dominant theme that stands out above all the rest in this book. And that is hope. Which is why Revelation is a great book to study at Christmas. It is because this book is full of hope. It's full of hope. And my, my hope, my wish, is that as we go over this book for the next three weeks, that you will actually be surprised by hope and the hope that it introduces. And the hope is found in this. The victory is already secured in Christ. The slain lamb of God, God who has paid the penalty for your sin, has been resurrected and now sits at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf. I want to place ourselves in that original context with that message. These seven churches weren't just seven churches that were having a a, a hunky-dory time in Asia Minor. These were churches that were under the oppression and the persecution of the Roman Empire, in which you were forced to make sacrifices and offerings to the leader of Rome who declared himself to be the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings. And in the face of that context, in the face of that culture, John receives a vision from God to unveil the mysteries of God to send to these seven churches. And the overwhelming message is this. Victory is already won in Christ. There is a real King of kings and a real Lord of lords. And all of the kind of power and all of the influence and all of the the, the oppression and all of the leadership that Rome provides you is simply a parody to the real power of God. And you want to know what that does for those seven churches? It gives them hope. It gives them hope in the midst of tremendous persecution in the midst of tremendous temptation to have a little bit of Roman worship and mix it in with my worship of the one true God. And so Revelation speaks to us about the hope that we have in Christ, that the victory belongs to Him, and that His church, the people of God, shall rule with Him forever because He already reigns and He already rules. You see, we can't rob this book of context or we make a dramatic error in understanding what it means for us today. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.